Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Dr. Michael Greger. For years, I've been talking about him and his website, uh, nutritionfacts.org, one of my absolute favorite websites on the entire Internet. Uh, He is the source of a lot of information that Louise and I have used in our own personal lives with regard to nutrition and diet and things like that. And he's got a new book out, and I wanted to get him on and talk about it. He is a physician, author, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. His previous book, How Not to Die and How Not to Diet, and the How Not to Die Cookbook. And he has a new book out, the How Not to Diet Cookbook. Dr. Gregor, welcome back to the program. It's been too long. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you. Tell us about your book. Oh, well, you know, uh, it's so much nutritional noise and nonsense these days. I just wanted to, there to finally be an evidence-based diet book. And I cite literally thousands of studies digging up every possible tip, trick, tweak, technique proven to accelerate the loss of body fat to give people every possible advantage. Basically, build the optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. So that was how not to diet. But I wanted to make a practical guide to put the mountain of evidence into practice. And so hence, the new cookbook out today, the How Not to Diet Cookbook. Diets don't work by definition because going on a diet implies that at some point you're going to go off the diet. Permanent weight loss requires permanent dietary change. Healthier habits just need to become a way of life. If it's going to be lifelong, you want it to lead to a long life. But thankfully, the single best diet proven for weight loss may just so happen to be the safest, cheapest way to eat for the longest, healthiest life. And look, this is the time to start taking better care of ourselves. I mean, consider the underlying risk factors for COVID-19 severity and death. Obesity, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. So for somebody who is thinking of trying a plant-based lifestyle, let's call this, rather than diet, where should a person begin? Well, if there were just three foods to add to one's diet, then I would encourage people to eat berries, the healthiest fruits, greens, the healthiest vegetables, and legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, some of the healthiest foods, all part of my daily dozen checklist of all the healthiest healthy foods. I encourage people to fit into their daily diet, part of a free app for iPhone and Android, Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. In fact, if you toggle over to weight loss mode, there's also the 21 tweaks to accelerate 
weight loss that I talk about and how not to diet. And if there were just three things first to remove from one's diet, if you only had three, then uh, number one would be trans fats. Two would be uh, processed meat, bacon, ham, hot dogs, uh, you know, lunch meat, sausage. These are category one carcinogens. We know they cause cancer in human beings. And also soda, liquid candy. We shouldn't be drinking our calories. So those are the uh, top three things to add, top three things to take away. And if we just did that, we'd be on the road towards better health. So for somebody who's eating the standard American diet, comparing that with somebody who goes on a plant-based diet, what is the difference in the rates? I mean, the number one and two killers before COVID came around, it became the number one killer in America, I think two weeks ago. But prior to that, and you point out the major risk factors for COVID are also all diet related, every single one of them. So for somebody who's on a standard American diet versus somebody who's been on a plant-based diet for a while, what are the differences in the rates of heart disease cardiovascular disease, the risk of stroke, the risk of heart attack, the risk of cancer. How real, how big are these differences? Every single year for the last century, from 1919 to 2019, the number one killer in the United States for both men and women, heart disease. But it wasn't 101 years ago because we had pandemic flu, and it may not be this year because of yet another pandemic. But when this pandemic is over, we will go back to killing ourselves with the standard American diet. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest study of disease risk factors in history funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. And there's only one diet ever proven to reverse the course, not just slow down, stop, but reverse heart disease is a diet centered around whole plant food. So like, if that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse the number one killer of men and women, <laughs> shouldn't that kind of be the default diet to improve another one? And the fact that can also be so effective in preventing, arresting, reversing other leading killers like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure would seem to make the case for plant-based eating simply overwhelming. You know, back in the 19, uh, late 70s, early 1980s, I met Nathan Pritikin, and he was yeah. singing this song. And he was largely being trashed for it. My wife and I had started a community for abused kids up in New Hampshire that was entirely vegetarian, and we were getting wired into this whole network of people. And he was supporting what we were doing also, and vice versa. And we've been eating this way since the 60s, frankly, by and large. I mean, for a long time, we thought that cheese and eggs were just fine. And and you're one of the people who kind of woke me out of that one. But how is it that... Science knows now. I mean, you know, the Cleveland Clinic research and everything else. And how is it that we know for a fact that if you simply abandon animal products from your diet, you are going to live longer, you're not going to get heart disease, you're not going to get cancer, or you're less likely to get heart disease or cancer. And yet, physicians are not recommending this to their patients. It's not part of standard advice. I mean, what the hell is going on in this country? Well, look, I mean, the doctors have a severe nutrition deficiency in education. Most doctors just never taught about the impact healthy nutrition can have on the course of illness. So, look, they graduate without this powerful tool in their medical toolbox. Now, look, there's also institutional barriers, time constraints, lack of reimbursement. I mean, in general, doctors simply aren't paid for counseling patients on to take better care of themselves. And, of course, look, you know, drug companies also play a role in influencing medical education and practice. You know, but look, ask your doctor when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by big broccoli. It's probably been a while. Yeah, yeah. So how do we best wake up friends and neighbors? I'm assuming the starting point is to get them a copy of your book, The How Not to Diet Cookbook, right? It's all about sticking to the science. 
Right. And so, yeah, they can go to uh, my website, nutritionfacts.org, free, nonprofit, science based public service providing daily updates on the latest in nutrition research and via bite sized videos and more than 2,000 health topics with new videos and articles uploaded every day at nutritionfacts.org. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's one of my absolute go to spots. We've done segments on this show, you know, quoting you. Uh, we played clips of you on this program. <laughs> I, I hope that's okay with you. I've been a big oh fan God, for a please. long time. Dr. Michael Greger, his new book is The How Not to Diet Cookbook. His website is nutritionfacts.org. Check it out if you want to live longer and better. Dr. Greger, thanks again for dropping by. On the science revolution this week, COVID has made it excruciatingly obvious that the Republican Party has devolved into a sort of wealth-worshipping death cult devoted only to rich people and big corporations who in turn fund their campaigns. Ellen Montgomery with Environment America is here on the Trump administration's rush to open Anwar to oil drilling. This could be catastrophic. Dr. Mark Plotkin with the Amazon conservation team drops by about healing the forest inferno. We need conservation of the Amazon in the face of fires and the pandemic. Tune into the science revolution wherever great podcasts are found. So let's spend an hour doing one of our conversations with great minds today. I have been looking forward to this all week. Dr. Justin Frank, MD, he is a psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. He's the author of numerous books, Bush on the Couch, Obama on the Couch, Trump on the Couch. His Twitter handle, and he's active on Twitter, you say hi to him, is Justin Frank, spelled just like it sounds, MD. Justin Frank MD is his Twitter handle. And Dr. Frank, welcome back to the program. Is there any place in particular you'd like to start? What's on your mind today? I'd actually like to get on to some more things about Trump in terms of characteristics that he has in his character and some of the things that we've talked about before, but there's plenty going on now. And then the other question is, what I think is that basically what we've seen is the way Trump has dealt with this election loss. And I wanted to start with that because Mm -hmm. I think that's very important on several different levels, if that's okay with you. Please. Because, first, first of all, he talks about courage, and he wants some of the justices or a congressman or somebody to show courage and stand up and except the fact that his election was stolen and that he really won. I think that he wants other people to have courage because he does not have courage. So he's wishing for somebody else to have courage. But the courage that he's lacking is really important because it's the courage to face loss. It's the courage to accept that he lost. It's not just about shame and humiliation. It's the courage to actually accept that he lost. And that's something that has from early childhood, his father said, you can never admit that you've lost anything. You always have to win. So when he talks about courage, he's actually talking about himself. The second thing is that when he talks about make America great again, and he talks about the way he talks in his rallies, he's essentially mobilizing people's anger, but having them deny loss that they deny their loss, because he's saying you don't have to deal with loss. You can just deal with the reality that I'm going to make America great. So he actually gives people encouragement to 
can't have to face reality, the reality being loss. So I think one of the biggest themes is loss. And it's very interesting because that's the one thing that we know about President-elect Biden. He's had a lot of loss that he's faced and that he has the strength to face loss. And he's a person who actually has courage. And I think Trump envies that. He is not conscious of it, but he cannot take the fact that somebody can actually acknowledge that he's had pain in his life. And that if you can't acknowledge loss, then what's going to happen when 300,000 people die of COVID? He can't feel empathy. He can't be humane, if you will. He's not able to do that. So he becomes more and more incapacitated or crippled in a way because there's a whole part of his life that he can't ever acknowledge. And the third part related, besides the courage and the loss, is that he's always had a fantasy of being rescued. Even though he says he's self-sufficient and self-efficient, he was always rescued by his father, by Roy Cohn, by Mark Burnett for The Apprentice. And I think he has the fantasy of being rescued now by the Supreme Court, that he's going to be rescued by somebody who has more power than he does and who's going to save him. So on the one hand, he seems very strong, but on another level, he has this deep need to be rescued, which he must deny. Other people need courage in order to stand up, but he has to deny to himself his deep need to be rescued. And it's very powerful. And that he, in his rallies, he has been able to speak to the people who have had terrible losses in their lives, who have felt marginalized, who felt that, and they feel in a way that he says, one of them even said after one of the rallies a long time ago, that he says what I think, but what I'm afraid to say. And so people feel very connected. So, But he is essentially giving people the permission to triumph over loss. Lock her up as a triumph over loss. Get rid of this person, any protester or anybody who kneels in front of the flag is a triumph over having to think about loss or having to think about the meaning of behavior. It's a triumphant thing. But what's happened since he's lost the election is now he needs the rallies to reaffirm him. So what was once him reaffirming them, now they have to reaffirm him. That's a lot. To what extent is that need for being saved deep in the psyche of all of us. I mean, it seems like that's at the core of Christianity, the idea of salvation, you know, that God will save us, that yes. God sent his son to save us, etc. Is that a universal thing? And if so, yes. how did it get so badly twisted with Trump? Well, first of all, that's a great question, because I think that's at the core of a lot of this. The need to be saved is partly based on an experience of having been saved for most of us, and that is that when we cry and don't have words, our mother or a caretaker magically knows that we're wet or that we're hungry or that we're sleepy or that we need a cuddle. So they can actually understand us without words. So we have a fantasy that we can be really understood straight away from early on, and that by the time we develop words, we live in a world where there is magic. 
So the biggest magic are certain kinds of myths, and the biggest myth, obviously, is Santa Claus, that we all, and as Christmas is coming up, we all believe in Santa Claus when we're little. I don't know what people believe in the Arab world in terms of some similar thing, but I'm sure they do. They have stories and myths. And those are about magic of being rescued, of being known, of being able to be understood, and that people know what to give you and give gifts. And what happens is that when the parents, I mean, this is just with really in normal, regular life when you have a parent or two parents, mm-hmm. what happens is that by the time you're four or five, you realize that your parents are human. They make mistakes, they screw up, they lose their temper, they sometimes forget to do things, or they are so busy they're not around, they're working and trying to make a living. Whatever it is, they become disappointed. So you have to shift that feeling of loss into something that's ready-made. And that's what you were saying about Christianity. It's ready-made. It's right there. God is waiting for the five-year-old. And I think that that's one of the origins of religion. We're talking to Dr. Justin Frank, a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry at George Washington University. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. His most recent book is Trump on the Couch. Yeah, we'll be right back. Justin Frank, MD. So, Dr. Frank, what is the impact on society when we have a leader who is so badly psychologically wounded or as badly psychologically wounded as Donald Trump? Well, the biggest problem is that we all us Americans, let's say, in society, at one level or another, we mirror our president a little bit, whether no matter if it's somebody we like or don't like. So people, I, I still remember watching George Bush and then a little bit later watching on interviews with Condoleezza Rice on TV and her speech pattern, her cadence of talk had suddenly shifted from the way it used to be into sounding just like George Bush, uh, very similar pauses and similar behavior. So we do imitate our presidents, all of us in one way or another. People start having uh, their hair cut like a president or acting certain ways. That's always been the case. But when you have a psychologically damaged president, the way Trump is seriously damaged, they evacuate the damaged parts of their personality into us and then try to make it better. So, for example, one of the things that Trump did in his first, in his first, hopefully his only, uh, inauguration speech was he talked about the crisis in the American city and how terrible things are and what a, how violent things are. And then he talked about the crisis in industry that we've all these plants are closed. So he's talking about his own damage as a child unconsciously, but that he is now going to rescue us. So we end up feeling ourselves more damaged than we might be. And then he's going to make it all better. He's like the father who comes into the room and scares the hell out of their kids at uh, uh, with a terrible ghost story and then leaves. 
And then they scream and have nightmares. And he comes back in. He says, I'm going to save you. I'll turn on the lights and everything's going to be okay. I mean, he's that kind of person. So he evacuates. He pushes in his own anxiety into us. And people become anxious. I've never seen so many anxiety, examples of anxiety in my practice or from other people as right before this election. People on both sides, right? Wing and left. Everybody was freaking out. To what extent do you think in the inaugural, to what extent do you think that what he, the subtext of that when he was talking about the cities was, there are black people in these cities, white people, I'm talking to you, I'm going to save you from them? Yes. I think that that a large part of it is the the whistle of racism and that he does talk to white people and and there really are the them and us and that's what he counted on and in his rallies there it's almost all white people and uh, he pays I guess for a few black people to come so he was speaking about he was inviting part of his damage this is really a great thing you asked part of his damage is that he splits the world into good and evil good and bad and there's no nothing in between there's no complexity so that speech let's was pick that up on the other black side people of are dangerous all right let's let's pick that up on the other side of this break we're talking with dr justin frank the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at george washington university author of trump on the couch you can tweet him at justin frank md Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, we have a new video over at TomHartman.com. It is the 12 steps. Common Cause actually put these together, but I boiled them down into a nice little rant on a YouTube video that you can share with friends and neighbors and acquaintances who might be wondering, how did this coronavirus thing get so bad? Why is it that the United States has a third of the deaths in the world? Why do we have over 200,000 dead people and South Korea has 200 and Taiwan has like 70 and Australia has fewer than 100 and has pretty much squashed the virus? Why is it that only seven people died in New Zealand? Why are so many other countries doing so well and we're not? 
Well, there's an answer to that question. And I lay it out in this little video. It's over at TomHartman.com. And you can grab it there and share it with your friends. And I'll give you a clue. Almost all of it has to do with things that that orange guy in the White House either did or failed to do. But it's a great list. You can check it out at TomHartman.com. Frank, Dr. Frank, you were just speaking about how Donald Trump in his uh, inaugural address was talking about, you know, the American carnage and specifically pointing to our cities. And, uh, you know, I will save you from this. And I asked you if the real subtext, if the real message that Trump was trying to convey in that inaugural address was white people across America, there's a lot of black people in the cities and I'm going to save you from them. I'm going to protect you from them. How does that dynamic play out and how is that impacting our society if that analysis is, is accurate? Well, part of that is that he knows how to instill fear because he's a person who has been frightened as a child and terribly frightened of his father. He had to deal with his father, who was a tyrant at home. So part of his individual psychology is to externalize fear, his own. So he has a place to put his fear, which is fear that white people have of black people. Now, what does he do to the black people? He also makes them afraid. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of the police. He gets both sides of a split to be afraid, it seems to me. And that's his way of externalizing. I mean, he's an equal opportunity projector. He gets rid of Mm. fear, either through his racism, or he gets black people and the brown people to be afraid of him and of the powers that be. And so they don't trust the government either. So he really is amazing at doing that. Unconsciously, he was, and probably consciously, he was always afraid of his father, always afraid of him. And he writes about it sort of casually in some of his books, but basically he would never buy a building without asking his father first. And then when he finally did do something like that, once or twice he makes these parenthetical comments, I was afraid to tell my father that I did this. And he could never really stand up to his father. So he has always gotten rid of fear, and he does that through bravado, through being like his father. When he talks about how dare you talk to a president like that, when he did that with a reporter a couple of weeks ago, he was directly mimicking the way his father talked to reporters when his father was a real estate agent and people were questioning him about his unethical practices. He essentially said the exact same thing with the same tone of, tone of voice and would mock people. He's very much like his father. I think that's one of the things that has happened in his divisiveness. But the other thing is that because he can speak to people who can't say some of their own hurts and rage and fears, he gives voice to them. And he gives voice to the voices, like I said on one of your other, when we were talking a few weeks ago or months ago. Mm -hmm. And that's one of his great strengths. But part of what he does is he also gives people permission to use his language, to say lock her up, to be really full of hate and rage. And he allows people to do it because he does it. I've recently become very interested in myths 
and not so much myths in the traditional Freudian sense, like Oedipus and those kind of things, but actually children's fairy tales. Because I think that lots of people have talked about the emperor's new clothes and Trump. People haven't talked that much about Humpty Dumpty, because I worry that sometimes America is like our democracy is like Humpty Dumpty, and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again. And that's one of the biggest fears that a lot of us have about the damage that Trump's already done to our confidence in democracy and our confidence in our government. That started a long time before Trump. But the other myth that kids say to protect themselves, and Trump is a self-protector, is that six and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's the one childhood fantasy that I really disagree with, because names can be very destructive. Calling people names is hurtful, and repeating names is hurtful. And Trump understands that more than just about anybody. That's why he says the press is the enemy of the people over and over again, why he talks about fake news over and over again. So by the four years of his presidency, we won't believe the results of the election because we're being lied to. He gets people to disbelieve things. Now, he was lied to as a child, I think, and I did work about on this a lot in my book, that one of the origins of compulsive lying is that the child has felt lied to by their parents when their parents say they love him. I love you. Mm. But to some children, that is a lie, because clearly their behavior was not loving. The father was violent and enraged. The mother was unstable and sort of chronically depressed. And so they become liars. They turn passive into active. They turn their victimhood into something else, and they make us feel the way he probably felt as a little boy. Lied to, we don't know what's true, we don't know what to believe. We'll be back with our our conversation with Dr. Justin Frank in about five minutes here after this break. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I want to get into uh, sociopathy and how it seems to be playing out with Donald Trump and uh, across the Republican Party, too. Stick around. We're reading today from Justin Frank, Dr. Justin Frank's book, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President. He's the guy who wrote Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. He's a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is from the introduction. There's no question that Trump is mentally unfit in ways that make him psychologically unsuited for the presidency. That in itself is a truly alarming turn of events. And I'd write the entire book in all caps if I thought that would better convey the sense of urgency with which it is written and should be read. Any number of troubling mental illness diagnoses and character evaluations can be and have been accurately applied to Trump. Both can vary from analyst to analyst, however, without necessarily sacrificing any of the accuracy. More to the point, the true value of a diagnosis is to determine an appropriate course of treatment, and there's no indication that any sort of treatment is a viable option. Trump on the couch then seeks not simply to make the case that Trump is not well, but rather to show how he is unwell in ways that would have been of particular interest to the applied psychoanalysts whose investigation likely preceded our own, the Russians, and perhaps even their American allies or counterparts, who in the long tradition of intelligence gathering examined Trump's psyche and found an opportunity for exploitation. Trump's presidency caps a lifetime of dysfunction and disorder 
that is not likely to be healed while he is in office. Just as Trump's ascendancy among voters gives expression to long-standing trends in the American electorate's psyche that are not going to be easily addressed. However, if we can identify certain aspects of these disorders and trends that may have contributed to Trump and his voters fusing into a shared belief system, then we have a better chance of fostering the kind of honest cultural discussion that will be necessary in order to contain and repair the damage that has already been done. Understanding Trump calls for a consideration of his psychodynamics almost certainly more rigorous than he has ever embarked upon on his own. Trump dismissed psychotherapy as a crutch in his 2004 Playboy interview. Years later, talking to biographer Michael D'Antonio, he described in greater detail a generalized aversion to introspection beyond the therapeutic setting. Quote, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see, he told D'Antonio. I don't like to analyze myself. I don't like to think too much about the past. End of quote. Even armed with a detailed family history, we can't capture Trump in action with only the tools of applied psychoanalysis. Like some of the most disturbed patients I've worked with, Trump is so erratic, constantly changing the topic, elevating the stakes, and raising the volume, that one doesn't know what to expect from him next. It's hard to imagine him in treatment. Even as the subject of applied psychoanalytical investigation, he behaves like a patient who is simultaneously banging in a consulting room window, rattling on its door, ringing the phone, and texting or tweeting his demands for attention. Trump presents so many troubling affects that it's hard to remember them all. In the final weeks of the first year of Trump's presidency, Michael Wolff and David K. Johnston published accounts of the Trump White House that present a president with a startling number of disturbing characteristics. Any one of these demonstrable and suspected traits would raise calls for a psychoanalytic investigation if it was done on a layperson. In a president, in aggregate, they are truly cause for alarm. The list of worrisome, evident, and alleged attributes that emerge in these and other portraits is long. Narcissist, liar, racist, sexist, adulterer, baby, hypocrite, chiseler, tax cheat, outlaw, psychopath, paranoid, fraud, ignorant, vengeful, delusional, arrogant, greedy, contemptuous, unsympathetic, learning disabled, cruel, obstructor of justice, threat to the Constitution, traitor. The list is so long that it can be overwhelming. It's a challenge to remember the beginning by the time you make it to the end. There are times when I wish someone would help us remember all the troubling aspects of Trump's character and behavior, past and present, in a way that would encourage recognition of the totality of his pathology rather than its component parts, which individually cause alarm before being temporarily forgotten when the next emergency presents itself. As an applied psychoanalyst, my task is not only to appreciate the full list, but also to ignore the big picture and focus on a single pathology at a time. Practitioners of applied psychoanalysis approach their subject as both theoretician and clinician. The theoretician endeavors to piece things together, to figure things out, while the clinician tries to approach each session capable of being surprised, as if his mind were a blank slate. The analysis in the following pages aspires to accomplish both goals. Reviewing Trump's record with a clinician's eye, preparing to be surprised by the unexpected observation, and assembling these findings into a more comprehensive portrait. The image of hypothetical patient Trump rattling the consulting room door and banging on the window reminds us that President Trump doesn't want us to see the entire list at once. 
Not only that, but patients I've treated who are reminiscent of Trump cannot tolerate being inside the consulting room either. They leave my office whenever they feel unable to think their way through an anxiety-provoking interpretation, much the way Trump leaves press briefings when the questions get too close. Trump on the Couch by Justin Frank. Dr. Justin Frank is with us. He is a psychiatrist, a MD, a psychoanalyst, clinical professor, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. Dr. Frank, I, I wanted to ask you about sociopathy and psychopathy and where Donald Trump falls on that spectrum and, and how that impacts society at large and why there why is it that experts on sociopathy and psychopathy suggest that psychopaths and sociopaths are overrepresented not only in prison populations but also among CEOs and arguably billionaires. I've heard that uh, argument made. Maybe we should start by defining terms and let me know if you disagree with anything I just laid out. Well, psychopathy and sociopathy are virtually interchangeable terms, so for starters. So I think that that's important to just not, that's a, there is a distinction without a difference. One has to do with the effect on society in general, psychopathy, and the other is psychopathy is about individual relationships. But basically, they're the same thing, and the dynamic has to do with a person who has somehow learned to triumph over guilt. They don't feel guilt. They are with, they have learned to somehow not feel guilt. And Donald Trump is a great example of that. So when he was a child, as we know, he was building a little building block thing. And he asked his brother, who was two years younger, Robert, recently deceased from COVID, by the way, he uh, asked him to give, lend him the building blocks so he could use those to help him with his tower that he was building. And, of course, once Trump had them, Donald had them, they became his. He owned them, and he glued them together so they were never going to be given back to his little brother. That's a form of early kind of psychopathy. It is a person without guilt. What They can take whatever they want. And it's always been this way. There have always been psychopaths in the world. They are, you can talk about them. There are so many psychoanalytic theories about them that I don't want to get into all of that. But basically, they are without guilt, and they can look you in the eye and be very seductive. And there are lots of CEOs. Some CEOs can be psychopaths because they can rise to the top without worrying or feeling inhibited or intimidated about hurting others or causing injury on their way to the top. I was told, and when I was a first-year resident at Harvard, very early on by the head of the department, we were all told at the same time, you don't become a psychiatrist until you lend a psychopath $5. And what that meant was that you have to not just believe everything you hear and everything that a patient tells you. You have to be suspicious, but you have to be uh, have the experience of being seduced and tricked, lending a psychopath $5. And you realize that there are people like that. 
and that that can happen to you and that you need to start paying attention to people and not just believe everything you hear. People are so hungry for a leader. They're so hungry. I mean, look at the hunger for Obama when he ran for president. There was such a hunger for a person of integrity and who was a man of peace and articulate. I mean, forget about the racial part, but he was like a rock star. And he was he was just fantastic. People are hungry for that. I think there's a whole different group of people who have been hungry for a leader like Trump. They're not the same people who were hungry for Obama, but the people who were hungry for Obama were disappointed. But Obama was not a psychopath. He felt guilt. He was inhibited. He had other issues to deal with, which I wrote about in my book about him. But Trump is a psychopath. The other thing about them without guilt is that people who are psychopaths don't have the capacity for concern. See, he was never concerned about his injury that he did to his little brother, Robert. There is never a concern about the feelings of other people. They never say they're sorry. They are don't have empathy for other people's pain, which is why he has really not talked about people dying of COVID. And they can be inspiring because some of them can be very good leaders who can, I'm not good, but very inspiring political figures who can really get people excited and worked up. For instance, psychopaths hate rules even more than the rest of us do. And they really hate everything that's a rule or regulations. So many Republicans hate rules and hate regulations, but nobody hates them as much as Donald Trump. He just hates them. And so he taps into the part of us that hate them. And I think that that gives us permission to say, to hell with these rules. I don't have to do this anymore. To hell with political correctness. So psychopaths are very seductive that way, and they don't have any conscience. So the only thing they're worried about is getting caught. They don't feel guilt. So their behavior is not inhibited by concern for others. He's not concerned about hurting other people. And I really did want to get to this at some point in our interview today, because I think it's really important to be very clear that Donald Trump is a killer, is a murderer, and he is has no guilt about it, but he doesn't do it directly because he can stimulate other people to do it instead of him. He doesn't walk around with a gun, but he has a bully pulpit and he bullies people and he has essentially killed off the Republican Party in a way. They're all afraid of him. I don't know if he has the goods on them, like some kind of J. Edgar Hoover kind of thing, where he has a little dossier on every member of the party, or what. Or they're just afraid of being primaried by Trump fans. But the, the danger of psychopathy is they can inspire a tremendous amount of loyalty because they give people permission to hate regulations. So when you were saying about COVID, for instance, and you were saying the person responsible for the huge discrepancy between the deaths in America and the deaths in the rest of the world, a lot of that is because of the orange man, as you call him, in the White House. But it is because of that man who has given permission for all of us to have a certain kind of psychopathy which is we shouldn't have to wear masks because that's control. We're Americans. Don't tread on me. That was our whole thing when the pilgrims came here. They didn't want to be told what to do. That's the Wild West. So he taps into the part of us 
that are rugged individuals that don't want to be told what to do. So wearing a mask is worse than wearing seatbelts. I mean, I grew up before there were seatbelts, so that's an acquired thing for me. Whereas, yeah, but I mean, the people who are under 40 or probably even under 50, I, hate, I don't want to age you here, but uh, but people who are under 50 grew up with seatbelts. So for them, it's just normal when they take their driver's education, they just put on a seatbelt. Well, I don't know what little, I think little kids who put on masks will be much more easily uh, able to deal with uh, a future pandemic, God forbid, if it happens, because they won't resist it. They won't fight against it. But Trump taps in to the psychopathic part because we all have a little psychopathy. We might want to get some money, you know, in the old days when there were pay phones, if you got a little extra change, you know, you might take it and not put it back. Or if you want to park a little illegally, you could park a little illegally and people go over the speed limit. There's lots of little subtle rule breaking things that people like to do. Cheat a little bit on their taxes, but not too much. Lots of people are like that. Trump taps into that part of everybody and gives permission for the psychopathic parts of us to flower and flourish and that's a real so danger so that's kind of where the, the every man to the psychopath. In. every person has a psychopathic part of themselves it's small hopefully but we all have a little bit of it and that's, i think that's that it's important to realize i mean it's a painful thing to say but i think that that's one of the things that trump is actually forcing many of us to look at our own inner trump parts Parts of us that yeah. have a little bit of him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Dr. Justin Frank it's is with hard. us. Uh, we'll be back with our conversation with Dr. Frank right after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So, Dr. Frank, I'd like to take this to the level of society, if I may, for a moment. Years ago, I met with uh, Professor Jack Forbes, a professor of Native American studies at UC Davis. He's now passed away. But he wrote a brilliant book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. And he said that when first contact happened, Native Americans were confronted with basically three choices because they were encountering European psychopaths. They could either run, which some did, they could surrender and hope to be treated with mercy, which many did, or they could fight back, in which case they became psychopaths themselves. They became their tormentors. I'm wondering, A, what you think of that, and B, how does psychopathy play out at the level of society and culture? 
of the biggest problems has been for the people who are against Trump to end up using similar tactics to the ones he uses. And so we become like Trump. And one of the dangers of having to deal with a helpless situation where you're being controlled and tortured or dominated by a psychopath is sometimes the only way out of that is to become like them. It's sort of like if you can't beat them, join them. And I do think Nietzsche wrote a lot about this, about the danger of you know, political opposition, that you become like the person you oppose. And so people are very upset. Many people who are fine, shall we say, fine people to use Trumpster, but people, good Christians or people who are deeply concerned about other people, they find themselves hating him, or they find themselves hoping that people around him die of COVID. Those are feelings that most people who are having them for the first time have never had consciously. And it's very disturbing because they feel guilty about it, whereas Trump doesn't give a damn about it. So the psychopaths, the stories that, you know, you heard about Columbus and other cannibals, I think that's true. I believe that. And I think that it is about the only way to fight them is to fight them and set limits. And I think that's the hardest thing to do with Trump. Trump should not have had a lame duck period of being president. He's a destructive, evil killer. So I think that the one thing about him is that when I worked in the hospitals and when I worked on the inpatient service, the one thing that was very clear was that when you had out-of-control adolescents or when you had people who were causing some kind of riot, you had to step in and stop them. I mean, I don't think you need police brutality, and most of the people who were protesting, you know, over George Floyd and other things were not rioting. But with Trump, he needs to be stopped, and nobody's willing to do that. People are too afraid to do it, or and I think that we've always been afraid of that kind of violence that's required. For instance, what was required in the Palm Beach problem with the hanging chads in 2000 and people banging on the doors would have been for Al Gore to say, stop it. You cannot intimidate us while we're counting votes. Nobody did that. People are afraid. So they kicked the can down the road. And here we are. We need to put limits on it. We'll be right back with Dr. Justin Frank. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading an excerpt from Robert Wolf's book, Original Wisdom, Stories of an Ancient Way of Knowing. I wrote the foreword for it. Robert Wolf died in Hawaii. Louise and I visited him there a number of times. He was in his 90s. And back in the 1950s, he was an anthropologist and sociologist who had been hired by the Malaysian government to figure out why this one particular aboriginal tribe, the Sanoi, who lived deep inside the jungle, hunting-gathering tribe, why they were, quote, lazy, why they were unwilling to work in the rubber plantations. And he got to know them, and he discovered that their view of the world was completely different than ours. And that's essentially what this book is about, and it's absolutely a mind-boggling book. I'll share a little. This is from the middle of the book. This is page 86. It's uh, finally he's reached the point where they'll let him sleep in the village with them. He says, in time, I grew to know them better. But it was when I began to overnight in their villages that I learned that they literally lived in another reality. When it became dark, people huddled together for warmth and companionship. In the tropics, there's no long period of dusk. It grows dark quickly. The air would become cool, and people would move closer together, reaching out, touching a neighbor, perhaps holding hands. Women might run their fingers through the hair of the person sitting next to them. 
During the nights I stayed over, they would often gather around me and have me ask them questions. Then they would ask me questions, very quietly and softly. Our being together was not like other social situations I'd ever experienced. We talked, but softly. They did not know how to compete for attention. A few words now and then were all that were spoken, a question or a comment, a simple answer. Long silences. Sometimes someone would have some tobacco and light a cigarette, a tobacco rolled into a leaf, which was passed around the group. People might ask each other whether they had noticed that particularly bright patch of sunlight on the side of the river behind a certain tree, or if they had noticed that large yellow bird that sang in the morning. Evening was a time of reflection, of gentle communication, of being together. I never knew their blood relationships, but evening times felt like family. As it grew later, one of the people would get up to go, go into one of the houses, more often little more than lean-tos or rickety huts on stilts, and fall asleep. Eventually, each of us had found an empty spot on the floor of one of the shelters, and wrapped in our sarongs, we huddled close to whoever else slept in that house that night. The houses did not belong to anyone. It seemed that each of the four or five little shelters was for all the people living in that settlement at that moment. We would fall asleep whenever we chose, and, I'm sure, with whomever we wanted to spend the night. Yes, people had sex, but even that was gentle, quiet, and discreet. Occasionally, someone might turn over and bump into a couple being a little too acrobatic or noisy, and there would be a grunt. Or people might move away from a couple that made too much to do about their lovemaking. Passionate lovemaking between young people often took place during the day, outside in a more hidden spot in the jungle, I was told. In the morning, we might not all wake up at the same time, but those who woke up early would lay quietly, waiting for more people to awaken. And somehow, as if by magic, we would find ourselves sitting in a circle, rubbing our eyes, stretching the kinks out. One person would say, I saw a bird, a beautiful bird. Someone else would say, yes, I too saw a bird. What kind of bird was it, another would ask. And so they would create a story with images from our dreams. They did not think that they were sharing dreams as we think of dreams. The Sinoi believe that the world we live in is a shadow world and that the real world is behind it. At night, they believe, we visit the real world. In the morning, we share what we saw and learned there. The story that was created around the memories that four or five people brought back from the real world set the tone for that day. Sometimes one of the group would take the lead in soliciting input from each person in the room. How about you? What do you remember? Other times, the story flowed without help. A few times, no story emerged at all. It was very obvious that when a more or less coherent story was created around the images we shared, we who had slept in that shelter would live that story that day. Usually, the stories were simple. A bird had shown the way to a tree that was bearing fruit. Later that day, some of us would find that tree, and of course, it did have ripe fruit. Or the story was about a bad storm, so people would stay close to the shelters all day, and yes, there was a big storm in the late afternoon. Occasionally, the stories were about things that affected all of them, all the people in the settlement, or perhaps even all the Sinai. In that case, they would make it a point to share with the people who had slept in other shelters as soon as possible. It might take all morning to disseminate that story to everyone. I did not witness any attempts to call a meeting, but it was obvious that when a serious story came out of a morning's dream-telling, all the people in the settlement would eventually hear that story. I learned about all of this very early during the time that I spent with the Sonoy. It was in what I thought of as the first village, the first settlement I visited, that an important story emerged from what I brought back from the real world during one of my nights there. It made a big impression on me because part of the story came from my dream. It was a particularly vivid dream about one of my family's dogs, an all-black mongrel that seemed to have come with the house we rented in the suburbs of Kuala Lumpur. 
we had tried to get rid of that dog. In fact, one of the first days after we moved in, we had run over the poor dog in the driveway, but he would not leave. We tried chasing him away. He kept coming back. So we adopted him and called him Jaga, which is Malay for guard or protector. I do not remember that Jaga was a particularly good watchdog, but he was around. And he goes on to tell his dream. And then it's just an absolutely fascinating book from Robert Wolfe's Original Wisdom. Welcome back. We're talking with uh, with Dr. Justin Frank, the author of Trump on the Couch, Bush on the Couch, Obama on the Couch, some really remarkable stuff. Dr. Frank, how can America most effectively insulate itself against future psychopaths in the White House or in other you know, high public office? Well, it's a complicated thing. I mean, first of all, people can insulate themselves. I don't know if you can insulate yourself, but if you can comment in public that you had been fooled, that you had been tricked. I'm not a big fan of Tom Friedman, for instance, but I really do admire him for saying that he made a mistake about Iraq and about believing Colin Powell and believing George Bush. I mean, he really was banging the drums for war in 2003 and four. But he finally admitted that it was a big mistake. He was fooled. He was wrong. That takes courage. I think that one of the things about psychopaths is that we either have to have been fooled and can admit it, like Neville Chamberlain probably never lent a psychopath $5, whereas Churchill probably did, so he knew that Hitler was a psychopath, whereas Neville Mm -hmm. Chamberlain hoped they could negotiate with him. And so he didn't understand that. He felt that we could work it out, but you can't negotiate with a psychopath. You have to accept the fact that you can't. Mitch McConnell is a psychopath. He's a classic psychopath, but he does it much more subtly than Trump does. But you can't negotiate with him. You can't. I mean, you think you can. He's a sophisticated psychopath. But but he's a sophisticated psychopath. He's a subtle psychopath. He -hmm. doesn't have an ounce of compassion. Do you think that that psychopathy tends to be tends to become like basically the price of admission to a political party when it gets captured by other psychopaths? Well, I think it does. I think the one thing that's great that Donald Trump has done for the Republican Party is wonderful, that he said things that they've been afraid to say. He's overtly racist. He's overtly sexist. He's overtly a person who is, you know, a little bit like Reagan, only not nice. I mean, Reagan said government is the problem. That's what a psychopath does. The problem is my mommy or my daddy who tells me I have to do my homework. They're the problem. I'll do it if you don't tell me. I'll wear a mask on my own. But if you tell me to wear one, I'm never going to do it. Never. Do you think Reagan was a psychopath or was he just a a really good actor who was saying the lines that that the billionaire class was was giving? I think he was a psychopath. And I think there's some examples of that that we probably don't have time to go into. But but in terms of the way he talked about the uh, Salt One Treaty and how somebody handed him a document of the Salt One Treaty that he had lied about. And he looked at the document and he says to the other person, this is a forgery. 
that's a psychopath. He can't see the fact in front of them. I wanted to say something before we stop about the danger of projection, because mm-hmm. Trump is always projecting. He's the pot calling the kettle black, all these things that we hear. And this is a very much of a technique that the Nazis used, that Goebbels wrote about, which is that you always tell people you are always on the attack and you actually attack other people for doing things you're doing. And I suddenly had this horrible thought that I just want to share with you or whoever is listening, that maybe all this talk about being robbed of the election and how Biden and the deep state stole the election suddenly made me think, is that a projection? Did he steal the 2016 election? Maybe that's Mm. what we're talking about. I never thought hmm. about that until this last week, and it was bone-chilling thought, let me tell you. Yeah, no, nobody with. really seriously looked into those 10,000-vote margins in no. Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin no. back in 2016. No, nobody did, because we trust. You don't become maybe a good political participant in our democracy until you lend a psychopath $5. Uh, maybe it applies to all of us, not just the people who are in the, the psychiatric residency program. I think that there's a real fear of facing things like that because we don't want to face uh, the parts of us that can be psychopathic. And so we assume that other people are like us. But the fact is that Trump is not like the rest of us. He really isn't. He's somewhat like a CEO, but he's not even like a CEO. He's really uh, like a mob boss more than anybody. Justin, you are one of the most brilliant people I know, and I'm so grateful that you came on the program with us to talk for an hour. Thank you. Thank you. I really like this a lot. Thank you. Me too. Dr. Justin Frank, MD. You can tweet him at Justin Frank, MD. And thanks so much for being with us today. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And be nice to somebody. If for no other reason than that it's something psychopaths generally don't do. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.